Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with the editor of one of the best Dutch magazine supplements, the great F.D. Persoonlijk. Also on the show, a Moroccan title that critically engages with contemporary architecture and urban conditions. And finally, we also discuss wildlife photography. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome to the show. We start the show, in fact, in Morocco, where I spoke with Hisham Bouzid. He started Think Tangier, a non-profit cultural agency in Tangier, focusing on issues related to urbanism, art, and architecture. He also created Makan, a journal of culture and space, and they just released their second issue, themed as Manufacturing Narratives. Let's find out more about it. Here is Hisham. Think Tanger is a cultural platform agency, non-profit agency based in Tangier in Morocco. And our work is very diverse, but we're focusing on topics related to art, urbanism, architecture, and how the social life actually evolves around those topics. So it's basically an art institution. We run three spaces in Tangier, a printing studio, an art residency, and from where I'm having this interview today, the kiosk, which is our new cultural hub. And we publish a magazine, cultural magazine each year called Macan. Yeah, and we run several programs like discussions, conversations, podcasts, workshops, all related to the same topics. You had a kiosk over the summer, right? Can you tell us a bit about that as well? Yeah, so the kiosk is uh, our new venue. It's a space that has been under renovation since one year now. It used to be the chest cafe in Tangier from the 40s. So the story of the space is quite fabulous. I had the opportunity to take the space over because I was looking for a place where Think Tanger can have a proper programming in terms of how we can, our audience have been growing the past eight years because we've been practicing since 2016. The kiosk is even though we just opened this summer, but it's really becoming one of the cultural hubs, places where people can meet, can gather, can exchange, can buy books related to the architecture again, urbanism, social philosophy. So it hopefully will evolve to be a melting point for culture and for innovation in the city. It feels to me that you are almost representing Tangier as well in the cultural scene. I mean, how would you describe, first of all, are you from Tangier? How would you describe the city? Because, of course, Morocco is known for, you know, Marrakesh. We have Casablanca, we have Rabat as well. But I think Tangier is becoming a little bit of, a, of an important hub there as well, especially in the cultural scene. Absolutely. It's, it's actually nice that you brought the other cities because... There are important cities definitely in Morocco, but Tangier has been for the past 30 years completely, I mean, even before the 2000s was a completely abandoned city. And there is a rise of awareness about the geographics of Tangier because we're facing Europe with only 14 kilometers. Like I see Spain from the kiosk every single day. Okay. It's quite fascinating. We see also the Gibraltar, which is the UK. So it's the space that we are in between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. So we are in a very this like liminal zone, right? In between cultures, in between 
since, and I think for the past years, unfortunately, the Moroccan voices and Tanjawi voices or Tangerine voices, as we like to describe them, didn't have much space in Tangier to be heard, to be vocal, because the cultural scene was mainly dominated by I would say international community, I would say a lot of European institutions. This is also due to the history of Tangier. I'm really glad to say that since the past probably five, ten years, there is a raising of a proper Moroccan cultural scene with the cinematic of Tangier in Mahan Art Space. Now in Tangier, there is also the Contemporary Dance Festival, Film Festival, so the scene is really growing. That's fantastic. Well, now let's talk about your magazine, Makan Magazine. I know the first issue, I believe, was published in 2020, but now, finally, the second issue is here. Tell us a bit more. I know the magazine is very much connected to Think Tangier, but what are the sort of topics the magazine covers? So, Makan is maybe, I think the name would would describe best the intention behind the magazine. Makan in Arabic means space. I mean, to give that kind of anonymous space to name of a magazine tells a lot because the intention behind Macan is to explore different spaces, different kind of spaces. They could be physical spaces, they could be fictional spaces, they could be social, urban, political, emotional. The idea behind Macan is really to dig into a lot of different topics. Of course, it's connected to Think Tanger because it's kind of the extension of our reflection about cities, how we evolve in urban spaces, how we think the urban spaces. But Macan is here also more to maybe emphasize the fact that there is a lot of connections that happens in our personalities related when we move into cities. And I think to really try to dig into those specificities. So the first issue was about informal urbanism called informal utopias. And the second one is much broader topic, which is called manufacturing narratives. And it's digging into and opening up some conversation about how can we reinvent narrative specifically from this region of the world, right? Specifically from Morocco, going from Morocco to Palestine, and going through all this Arab-speaking milieu, and how can we counter all the media coverage that is going to the Middle East and to North Africa? And so, yeah, it digs into questions of gender, of architecture. It's also an artistic magazine, so we have contributions from visual artists, photographers. That's amazing. And and what I like, I mean, it's also distributed, I believe, by Moto Books in Berlin, so it's quite international in the sense that it's not just aimed at perhaps people in Morocco, but I, I believe you have a lot of kind of sales points in Europe and in other places as well, right? Absolutely. So this is the first time that the magazine is being actually the, distributed at the international scale. We mm. just, I just came back from Berlin last week where we had a lunch in Germany, in Berlin at Motobooks, who we dearly thank, by the way, to be able to distribute the magazine. And soon we'll be actually touring with McCann. We have dates in coming in Amsterdam or in Rotterdam at the new architecture museum, in Sharjah at uh, the Sharjah Art Foundation at the Focal Point Book Fair. And yeah, the intention is like, we cannot just, this is some narrative that we really try to spread as much as we can. And I think it's important for this kind also of reflections to be present in the European and North American spaces as well. 
And by the way, I was reading that before you started Fintanger, you were a bookseller in Tangier. Exactly. So, so you always had this passion for print in a way, right? I, I, I am obsessed by books and prints. It's really all my economies are done by building a, a library <laughs> for my own. And funny enough, in the kiosk, I'm also featuring a bookstore. So that's also part of, I think books are also here to, you know, reinforce our ideas and open up our minds. So I'm also, I do also screen printing. We have a studio of printing. So everything related to paper is probably <laughs> a drug for me. I love that. And and, and Hisham, now I'm going to ask you, as because I'm curious about this, how is the kind of magazine scene in Morocco? I mean, do people still buy their daily newspapers on a newsstand? I mean, how do you see that? Because I know there's been many changes around the world, and I'm very curious about Morocco. It's a great question. I think, I mean, Morocco, as any country in the world, is also, you know, influenced by the globalization, by social media, by our phones and how we consume information, right? We have been witnessing some huge reduction of publications in Morocco the past years, but I believe that in the independent cultural and creative sector, we feel the need and the urgency to go back to that. So there is definitely much more new publication coming. I can think of Shargi, which is a beautifully designed journal by an artist art space actually in Marrakesh called Do This Beat. But this is in the creative sector. But I would say the news are and the newspaper are definitely shifting the way how they're being consumed today in the country as well. And people are more, of course, in you know iPads and iPhones and stuff. But when I look at the bookshops today, when I see how other bookshops are doing, I think it's also challenged the way how the industry of publications in Morocco is thinking how and targeting the audience. And it's not bad, it's not good, it's just a shift, I think. Thank you very much, Hishan. And issue two of Makan is out now. For more information, go to their Instagram page, Think Tanger. Let's move to the Netherlands now where I had the pleasure to speak with Thomas de Hyde, editor of FD Personlook, the beautiful weekly Dutch magazine supplement from the financial paper Het Financiële Dagblad. The weekly title is a beautiful look at fashion, architecture, art. In fact, this weekend's edition is a special on design and architecture. Thomas tells me more about the title and the importance of magazine supplements. FD Personlook is the weekly magazine of the Het Financiële Dagblad, the Dutch Financial Daily. And we have combined online and print around 120,000 subscribers. The magazine focuses on topics like lifestyle, culture, design, career, and a lot of personal stories. We publish year-round, so we make around 50 editions each year. And we are there every Saturday with the newspaper. I mean, that's impressive. And and one thing, Thomas, I've been noticing in recent years that those magazines, they're such an important part of a newspaper. I can talk from a personal point of view. Sometimes I just buy a newspaper because I like the magazine. I think it's precisely, I'm sure it's the same with your magazine, especially because you publish every single week as well. Yeah, we heard that often from our readers. So um, uh, that they partly buy the newspaper because of the magazine. And 
I think the newspaper magazines developed really rapidly the last years. You see it here in the Netherlands for, well, almost every newspaper has its own weekend magazine. And also if you look abroad, for example, to uh, a magazine of Le Monde or how to spend it of the, of the FT. So you see, yeah, there's a lot of newspapers pay attention to their uh, magazines and I think they are really beautiful. And at the same time, you can take things for granted. I know you've been mentioning to me that even your magazine has been through a few changes, perhaps a little design revamp. Tell us a bit more about that as well, because I have to say I have a couple of issues in front of me. I have, for example, the Man Style edition. I love it. Beautiful photography. But tell us about some of the changes you've implemented. Well, we produce around 10 special editions each year. So the men's style issue, which you have received, is published twice a year. We also make a young talents issue with 50 promising talents every year. And also our fashion edition and, and the design and architecture one. And about our restyling, yeah, we um, uh, made some changes last month. So we decided to refresh our layout at some new columnists, but also we launched a new section. It's called the Ontmoeting in Dutch and translated into English, it means the meeting. And it focuses on social involvement because I think these days it's really important to let people know that you can have a conversation about topics you, you disagree, but in a respectful way. So every week in the Ontmoeting, we interview two experts about the same topic, uh, but they have a different perspective on it. So for example, about hunting, should we stop with it or is it okay? Or about a topic like the ideal voting age, is it 18 or 16 or maybe older? So each week we choose topic and um, we are really happy that uh, uh, Noma Barr, a London-based illustrator, accepted our invitation to make the illustration every week. And I think uh, he's doing a great job. And I have to say, of, of course, excuse my Dutch, but there's one segment that I really enjoyed. I think it's called Hoiste Coop, uh, which is about yeah. property. I thought it was quite fun because, you know, it tells, I believe, the price that the property is valued now, how much the people bought it. I mean, it's quite interesting. I think it looks very good on page and something that I'm sure a lot of people will be interested as well. Well, your Dutch is uh, very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to Cope is uh, one of our oldest sections and uh, we got a lot of yeah, feedback from our readers uh, to it or they uh, say, well, pick my home, it's uh, for <laughs> sale now. And people love it to look into other houses and see what's the story behind it. And I think that's the power of this section. Well, Thomas, tell us, uh, I know this weekend, it's going to be quite a special edition of the magazine. It's a, an architecture and design special. Can you tell us a bit more? You told me that, you know, there's a lot of pages as well. So it's one of the most kind of expected ones. Yeah, we make that uh, special uh, twice a year, and this is our uh, fall issue. And it's uh, 164 pages all about design, architecture, the trends about the upcoming design for Mexico. We interviewed a Portuguese designer of furniture. We did a lovely photo shoot with vintage materials. And yeah, it's one of our biggest issues. So when it's on newsstands, it's like a really, really big magazine with all those lovely 
stories, beautiful pictures. It's a great issue. How's the print market for newspapers and magazines in the Netherlands? Of course, when I go there, I love stopping by an Athenaeum and I usually buy a couple of some Dutch titles, some, some that I haven't heard. But how is the market? I know there's been challenges around the world, but... You know, it seems to me that the Dutch newsstand is still quite strong. There's a lot of, I see a lot of newspapers, including yours. How, <laughs> how do you see the whole scene? Yeah, I think the Dutch market is really online-minded, especially during weekdays. But in the weekends, especially when I look into our target audience, there are people with, um, there are CEOs or entrepreneurs, and they are behind those screens all day, all week. So in the weekends, we experience they want to relax, want to take some time for their for themselves. And then printed newspaper and a real magazine, that's great. You can you can relax, you can put it away and then read a bit later on. So yeah, I think print is still doing well, but uh, of course it's different than uh, than before. How long have you been working at FD Person Look? I've been working at the magazine for around eight years now. I started as a junior editor, writing a lot myself and uh, coordinating uh, some sections. And then one year ago, I uh, became the chief editor. And, you know, I'm just curious because, of course, in some countries, newspapers are very politicized, you know, always left or right. But I think your newspaper, I'm, I'm, I might be wrong, but how is it perceived, do you think, by, by the Dutch? Is it kind of a centrist, the financial paper? Is it quite considered very serious? I just want to see how can I place it in this political spectrum, in a way. I think uh, you could say uh, neutral. Mm. Um, we think it's very important to let people, um, to our readers, decide by themselves what they like or not. So we are just... Uh, trying to be objective as possible and yet to be neutral. So I think that's the that are the best words for it. Yeah. So it's not left or right. It's we try to be neutral. Well, this show is Saturday morning. So if you are in the Netherlands, go to the newsstand because it's out today, right? Every Saturday. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Amazing. Or if you're not in the Netherlands, I'm sure you can look at it online, and I'm sure that you have online subscriptions as well. Yeah, we do a lot of uh, online uh, subscriptions. You can follow us also on Instagram or go to fd.nl slash personlook. Thank you very much, Thomas. And go buy your edition of FD Personlook this weekend if you are in the Netherlands. We now head to the Natural History Museum here in London, which is hosting the 2023 Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards. Monaco's Harrison Warlock went along to speak with some of the winners about their images, including forests glittering with fireflies, orcas on the hunt in the Arctic, courting gannets on a cliffside, a tapir's jungle close-up, and a spider seemingly swayed by Krishna's melody. My name is Vihan. I'm 10 years old. I'm from India. This is a photo of an ornamental tree trunk spider next to a carving of Krishna. And he is a Hindu god. Krishna is a Hindu god. And what inspired you to take this photo? Uh, I've always been fascinated by spiders since I started photography. When I was young, I used to hear stories of Krishna. When I saw both of them together at one place, I wanted to include both the elements in one frame. Amazing. And how long have you had a fascination for spiders? Since I started photography, that's since three years. How long did it take you to get this shot? 
I took about 222 images and then some few of them came good and this is one. My name's Bertie Gregory and this image we're looking at is of three Antarctic killer whales, very special type of killer whale scientists called B1s and they are also known as the wave washers uh, and here in the picture they are using an incredible amount of teamwork and coordination between the family, the pod, to create a wave to wash this Weddell seal into the water so they can eat it. You know, it's an amazing strategy because that seal should be safe, it should be out of reach from the killer whales but they're very, very smart and it's what they do best. What are the difficulties with taking a shot like this? So, I mean, a big challenge is, is finding these killer whales. There's only a hundred of them in existence. We were on a high strengthened sailboat, so we sailed to Antarctica from South America. And uh, yeah, these killer whales love ice because that's sea ice is where they find their seal prey so they can wave wash. Boats famously don't really like ice. So the real challenge was just finding the killer whales and then keeping up with them. Especially when they were on the hunt, they'd go pretty fast through the ice. So the drone was key, not just for taking the picture, but for actually just keeping up, keeping track with the killer whales. Because often they'd move through the sea ice very fast and we'd have to keep up with them with the boat. The boat would you know, have to maneuver through the ice and that'd be quite difficult. And the, the drone could obviously keep up with the, the killer whales more easily. So yeah, amazing, amazing behavior to, to witness. And how long have you been involved in wildlife photography? So I've been photographing wildlife since I was a teenager. Right now, uh, although I, I do still take pictures, I'm mainly a wildlife filmmaker and presenter. So I have a series on, on Disney Plus called Animals Up Close, uh, which came out just a couple of weeks ago. And we actually did a whole episode about these amazing killer whales. And that was why I was, was down there. So I just got asked, oh, what is it hard to choose the picture of these killer whales to enter? You must have taken thousands. And I didn't. I took a handful because I was there to film a TV program. So yeah, on this particular occasion, the killer whales had wave washed this seal so many times and just couldn't get it in the water. I think I had about 30 waves. I thought, oh, just switch to stills quickly, take some stills and then go back to video and lucky enough to get this frame. I'm a passionate photographer. It's not my full-time profession. Uh, yeah, this image was taken from uh, paper eye, the Atlantic forest in Brazil. Yeah, so we were uh, looking for actually birding, the nocturnal birding. Then fortunately, we know that there is a taper around, but we were expecting it to see, looking forward to it. Then, um, yeah, fortunately it appeared just in front of us. So then I just went up close and, you know, tried a new perspective. And was it not scared off by you coming this close? I took her a lot of time to go so close like I mean I was so slow and you know yeah. so didn't want to bother them yeah. it looks very curious and it's yeah. kind of like interested in what's going on yes 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 of course I mean when it feels us not as a threat then yeah it, it becomes a bit curious yeah so and how long did it take to get this shot see considering the time which we wildly photographers spend in the forest this is hardly nothing we work like months years behind a species now, this is hardly, this was a 10 days expedition. My name is Sriram Murali. I'm from India. This is a photo of uh, billions of synchronous fireflies turning an entire forest into a carpet of yellowish green. So fireflies start synchronizing their flashes and it's carried across several trees glowing in unison and they flash to attract uh, mates. How high up were you when you took this photo? I was about 500 meters up and this was a valley. I was overlooking a valley down and 
It's quite fascinating and ironic actually. This location had a forest fire a few years ago and a lot of the trees were burned down. And for some reason, fireflies like really like this location. And one of the hypotheses that myself and uh, fellow researchers have is that um, it's like a beacon effect. So since the trees are so interspersed, they're able to display their flashes to much larger distances. And how common is this many fireflies in one place? This was the first time it's ever uh, recorded, this many fireflies. There are synchronous fireflies in the US, in, in Malaysia, several places in Asia, but none where each tree has millions. And there were fireflies everywhere in, in all possible directions as far as the eyes could see. And this has existed for millions of years. And I was really lucky and fortunate to live very close and document it for the first time. And how long have you been involved in wildlife photography? I've been doing it for over a, a decade now. It started with a passion for astronomy and night skies. And then I was home during one of the lockdowns during COVID and I went in search of the stars and I fell in love with birds and fireflies. My name is Rachel Bigsby. I am a 26-year-old self-taught wildlife photographer and the winner of Natural Artistry at the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards this year. So what's happening in your photo? This image is called the Art of Seduction. It's of two courting gannets shot at North National Nature Reserve in Shetland. And now these cliffs are made of sandstone, so they're very easily eroded by the elements, by the wind and by the sea. And as a result, they've got these gorgeous, very, very soft curved shapes to them. And when my boat got close to the cliffs, I saw this potential straight away. And what I really wanted to do was to use these streaks of white guano and all of the lovely curved soft shapes of the cliffs and to find a courting pair of gannets to bring the whole image together. And out of 22,000 pairs of gannets, finding one pair that were doing this was actually really impossible, which you wouldn't believe. And it was one of those stories where it sort of all came together in the end. The turbulent sea swell was really building. Our skipper made the decision that we had to go. I fired off three shots. And fortunately, the gannets drew up. They started courting at the same time. And I was able to just get away with this gap in between, which is what I really wanted. And everything came together in the end to create the shot. How common is the courting ceremony? Um, the courting is very, very common. And the whole reason that I could achieve this image is just by understanding the behaviour of the gannets before I photograph them. And there are species that I work with a lot, so I knew those signs and signals to look out for beforehand, which implied that they were about to start courting and that it was possible that I might be able to achieve this image. So it's a real big takeaway and something I say to a lot of up-and-coming photographers, really understand the behaviour of your subject before you photograph it, because just that one indication allowed me to predict when to hit the shutter and come away with a shot. And what got you into wildlife photography? My granddad was a very, very keen naturalist and avid fisherman. So he instilled my passion for wildlife from the youngest age that I can possibly remember. And I was always quite a creative child and teenager. I would paint an awful lot. And then as I think I grew older and modern technology developed and I got my hands on my first camera, I was just looking for a new way to capture the emotions I felt for the natural world other than painting. And then I suppose I took to photography because in a way it was quite similar to painting. You were still in control of the image that you were coming out with at the end. It was just a different artistic process to get there. Thank you very much, Harrison. And make sure to go and visit the 2023 Wildlife Photographer of the Year exhibition at London's Natural History Museum.
And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any queries, just email me at fp at monaco.com. We'll be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, subscribe to the show at monaco.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Visage with Wildlife. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.